Good morning. Our scripture reading today begins in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 17, and we'll conclude with chapter 9, verse 6. He said to me, Have you seen this son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must it also fill the land with violence and continually arouse my anger? Look at them putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look at them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring near those who are appointed to execute judgment on the city, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of God of Israel went up from and above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the men clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side. And he said to them, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, Follow him to the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men and women, the mothers and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the old men who were in the front of the temple. That's why we had, try to have cheery announcements. You know, we're working through— if you're, if you're new, we're working through the book of Ezekiel, and um, Ezekiel is not one of the peppier books in the Bible, um, but it, it's one that churches almost never preach through, and so uh, I have not found a church in America online that's published sermons all the way through Ezekiel. So uh, we're going to serve the world and just slog our way through this book with joy. Um, yeah. Uh, Okay, so I'm going to just dive right in, because there's so much to say about this, and it's going to—okay, let's just go for it. Okay, um, let's start with this. One of the things that we need to reckon with is if God is loving, love is a virtue. It's a disposition of character, right? It's, it's something possessed in our being and our formation, but it also moves out from us towards other people in a way that affects them deeply, right? Love is, is a virtue, but it comes out in a way that is felt, received, apprehended, enjoyed, right? So one of the things to ask ourselves about uh, love and God's love, us being loving, what it means to love others, is what does felt love require? If you're going to feel loved by another person, what must be done or come from them in order for you to actually feel loved? Does that make sense? Because it's not—it's not much good to know somebody loves you in a way, but not ever feel like they love you, right? This is not the loving relationships we desire so deeply in our hearts to have, right? And so— one way to think about this is this, is you could say there's at least three things. One is, is that you have to see the good and bad with someone, right? So things happen to them. Things are going on in their life. Things, like they're having disappointments and successes, and like you have to actually be, be able to look at their life, see what's happening, and you've got to be able to tell the difference between what's like a good thing happening to them and what's a bad thing happening to them. Does that make sense? 
Now, it's not just that. You also have to have a sense of its weight. Like its proportion. For example, yesterday I spent like, I don't know, this is a Sunday, right? Friday or Saturday, I spent like four and a half hours smelting lead, right? With my son, doing some stuff, doing some yard work. Now, I know that kind of annoys my wife. Like if she could have chose what I did with my Friday or Saturday middle hours, she would not have chosen that. But what I also know is she doesn't really care that much, right? So for her, like it was a negative, but it's a trivial negative. And I really wanted to do it. So I did, right? So it's, it's not just the good or the bad. It's actually the proportion, the weight, like whether or not the thing is important or whether or not the thing is trivial. Does that make sense? Sorry, I went, I went too fast. And then once you get a sense of the good or badness of the thing and the weight of the thing, is it trivial or weighty? Then the issue is, is like, what comes out of you? Right? Do you see what it is? Do you see how much weight it has? And then do you have a proportionate, full response to it that is not just sort of like intellectual, but it's like intellectual, emotional, and even in some sense visceral. Like, it's like, the, right? God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Your soulishness is kind of like everything kind of wrapped up together, which includes like your reaction or natural response to something. And when you use your strength, that's kind of like your reaction to something, what you're doing with it, right? And the idea is, is if somebody's going to feel loved, all that kind of has to run together in singular integrity towards them and hit them like the broad side of a barn so that they can feel it and they feel something coming from you. Does that make sense? Otherwise, it doesn't feel like love. Um, one of the ways this passage breaks that down, I'm going to try to just break down into two parts, is one is, um, when we see something that is—sorry, this is not the right slide for that. So like positively speaking, if we see something really good in somebody's life happening with them, and it's very weighty, right, then the right holistic response is like admiration and celebration, right? So for example, the first—what we do when we came here, we admired and celebrated God through what we call musical worship, right? We, we celebrate because God's always—it's always apt to celebrate God, right? And so we, that's what we do. If it's negative— if something really bad happened that's also very weighty, then the right response of love is lament or grief or sometimes anger with them, right? And so um, as you move through the book of Ezekiel, because God is interacting with people in such an incredibly negative context, right? People have spent 400 years morally abusing God after he has given them everything, right? Later, just a couple chapters in the book of Ezekiel, he's going to liken it to adultery, but not just general adultery. Adultery where she had nothing and he had everything and he gave her everything and then she just wasted it. Right? The worst kind of thankless, hateful, trivializing adultery. Right? That's what he's going to liken it to morally. And that's the moral context here. And so God is interacting with this as a perfect lover. And the right response is to discern what it is, good or bad, to discern its weightiness. How much does it matter? And then to have a full soul-hearted mind, soul-heart strength response to it. Which means that the God of love, when interacting with this context, love expresses itself in jealousy, grief, and detestation. The perfect emotional creature expresses rightly his response in this context with jealousy, grief, and he detests things, right? And if he didn't do that, if he didn't respond this way, he would not be glorious. He would not be morally magnificent. One of the things that, um, that happens in our culture a little bit is we— 
there, there tends to be this coy sarcasm in our modern culture that like something can be really bad and it's be- like you're more mature or sophisticated if you don't respond at all emotionally, right? And that is not indicative of a moral loving culture. It's indicative of a power-based culture, right? Because if people can get you to react, they can control you. So even though things might be really terrible or even really good, you're going to be like emotionally flatlined because you're not going to enter into something with strong emotion because if you do, and you don't do it prudentially in full wisdom, right, other people can like use that to jerk you around. And so you're not going to do it. Or you've been hurt so many times, you're just like, you know, I'm not going to even enter into that because when I do, I'm just going to get hurt. And you see, God, even though he has been attacked and abused and misused and hated and distrusted, he never succumbs to any emotional wounds in his perfections. He has no. He has emotional pain, but not emotional wounds. He still relates perfectly in love. As the most abused being in the history of creation, he's also the most unharmed by it. Right? And is therefore like a preeminent being to help us in our hurts and brokenness relative to our fears related to love. Right? Now, what that means in this passage would be something like this. As a believer, someone who's coming to faith, that sharing God's heart, when the moral context is evil and consequential and full-hearted in our loving response back to him is going to be sharing in his grief. Part of the Christian life living under the curse in a world that has sin in it is part of worship is adoring God, loving God for all the good that he does, enjoying and accepting and receiving all the good in creation, all of the blessing and common grace in our lives. All of that is part of loving God, but also grief and lament and sorrow for that which grieves God is part of being in communion with the heart of God himself. And where that does not exist, our devotion to him does not exist. Right? So let's—I'm going to break this down these two parts. So these are the three parts of offering love. Like, just as—just as we know viscerally what we need from somebody else to feel loved by them, sometimes we don't believe that that's actually what faith looks like if we offer love to God. The things we most desperately need in our heart, that we want to be seen for who we are, we want someone who loves us to see what's happening in our life, to understand it, whether it's good or bad, to see its proportion to us and how we feel about it, and then respond wholeheartedly towards us in sympathy or empathy or help or crying with us or weeping with us or rejoicing with us, because that is what love authentically is, and it's what our deepest heart viscerally knows we require and want desperately. It's because that is what love is, And what God pours out, and also if we're going to learn to love God, what we pour back to him. And in a world that's still under the curse before final redemption, it's going to include a lot of admiring and adoring God and all the good he does, but it's also going to include a lot of grief. As we look at the world and we discern that something is bad or wicked or evil or detestable, as we see that it's not a trivial thing but a weighty thing, And as we know, the right emotional full response is that it is detested with grief, right? So we'll look at that in the two parts. One is distinguishing the detestable from the trivial, and the second is grieving and lamenting over detestable things. Okay, so let's jump in here. This is peppy, right? This is fun. Are you having fun yet? Okay. So first is that part of loving God is distinguishing the detestable from the trivial. It's part part of loving God is— is distinguishing those two things from one another. So um, early in the Old Testament, when God is trying to help 
the people see what it means to belong to him, he, he explicitly says this is part of what it means to know him. Look, let's look at the, the passage in Ezekiel first. He says this. God says to Ezekiel, that's what he said to me. God said to Ezekiel, have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they're doing? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying all of Judah is, is, is getting two things fundamentally wrong. One is they are doing what's detestable rather than what's admirable. Does that make sense? And in doing the detestable thing, they also, they, they like, they know it's wrong, but they don't think it's a big deal. They think it's trivial rather than weighty. So they're wrong on both counts. It's detestable, not admirable, and it's weighty, not trivial. And so they do the wrong, they know it's wrong, but they think it's fine because it's, it's no big deal, right? Like, what, do your, what does your teenager say to you when they don't see the end of something, right? And you can't help but see it, and you're like, you can't do that. And they're like, dad or mom, why are you making this such a big deal? They don't say, dad, this thing is admirable. It's a beautiful, good thing, and you're telling me it's bad. No, they know it's bad. They're just like, you're, you're misweighing it. You're like, you say it's like this big, weighty thing. It's not. It's like, well, is it? It's a discernment question. And old people are usually right about that. <laughs> um, I say as a perfectly middle-aged person, you know. Um, <clears throat> he says this, um, is it a trivial matter the house of Judah, to do these detestable things that they're doing here? Must they all fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Right? So in Leviticus 10, 9, and there's other passages that cover this, God says to the people of Israel, he says, you must distinguish between holy and common, between clean and unclean. Holy and common, clean and unclean. Now think about that. What does that mean? Right? Why does he use that language? People have really struggled with God using that language. Remember, this is super early in God speaking and showing himself to people. They don't have a lot of spiritual background. They, they're prone to misunderstand God. They don't, and God's teaching them a holistic thing about creation. He wants to teach them the difference between like animals you should eat and not eat. And like he wants to make them a pure and holy people who are separate from other people. And he wants to help them make moral distinctions and spiritual distinctions. And he wraps that all into a single metaphor, clean, unclean. Right? That is, this is the thing you should approve of Mentally, it's reasonably approvable, but you should also feel like it's a good thing. That is, like you would respond to something that's like clean, that's not gross. Does that make sense? And you're like, oh, I can use that. That's fine. That's, an, that's an, a usable condition, and I don't have a natural revulsion to it. Whereas the unclean isn't just bad or unusable or you shouldn't do it, but like you should feel grossed out by it. Like it's actually, it's not a bad thing to be like, yuck. It's meant to create that, whether that was like, eating dead animals that are rotting, right? And you're like, why would they do that? Well, there's not, there weren't grocery stores, friends. And that's meat. And it's organic, you know? <laughs> but it also included, like, sexual immorality. And it also included worshiping idols. And all of these things were detestable or abominable. Those words, detestable and abominable, specifically, they don't just mean bad, right? God has words for bad. Transgression, sin, wickedness. There's lots of words for just bad. Detestable and abominable means that there is an emotionally moral reaction to it. You, you respond by saying, yuck, or get that away from me, or I don't, I don't want anything to do with that, or it makes me sick to my stomach. That is that there are, there's a, a moral response. And a lot of people will tell you that you shouldn't even have that. Now, it's kind of coming back now with the politicization of everything, and like it's okay to be super mad at people as long as you think you're right about it, and you can dehuman— like the whole, the whole idea of like anger is, fa is fabulous, and it's good to have like whatever reactive emotion you want— to hurt other people is kind of becoming popular again, right? 
but it's certainly not consistent. Right? Humanly and morally speaking, they get really angry about this political thing we're on about today that like, you're a cool or good person if you're angry about it, but like all the other morally problematic things in the world you don't even pay any attention to, right? Especially the ones that like you should change about personally in your own life. But you see in here, God says clean and unclean, that's detestable, admirable, right? And holy and common. That is weighty, not weighty. Right? What is holy? Like things that were common that is not designated as holy. What does that mean? It means they're just fine. They're no big deal. It's just part of life. You don't have to treat them specially. You can treat them however you want. It's not a big deal. And holy is, you need to treat this in a very, very, very specific way, exactly like I'm telling you to handle it. And most things were common. Most things were completely in the area of human freedom. And a few things, because they represented God and his character and what he was teaching, had to be treated in a very specific way. You see the difference? Trivial, weighty, admirable, detestable. Does that make sense? Now, therefore, anybody who's learning to love God has to understand and begin to love, like, what he finds admirable and detestable, and what he finds trivial and weighty. There's two axes of this graph, and you have to get them both. Because if you only get the detestable, admirable one, and you don't pay attention to the weightiness one, you will be very, very okay with horrible things existing in your life because you'll persuade yourself that though things are only a little detestable, they're also trivial. So who cares? Right? So, for example, from God's perspective, I also added a little bit of like Madisonian bigotry here, just for fun. <laughs> right? Right? So Bucky and there's Michigan and this is the worst thing in the world, right? <laughs> but, you, but you'll see like, it's still just sports, right? Like, we're throwing a ball around, right? Like it's, it's the most trivial thing you could imagine, and it's one of the reasons why it's fun, right? Because, like, we hate Ohio State, but, like, we don't really hate Ohio—well, some of us do, but we shouldn't, right? Like, so yeah, it's another school. Who cares, right? Um, and so, like, that's—it's, it's like, detestable, but really trivial. I mean, who cares, right? And then, like, you know, things like natural beauty in creation. Like, that's—that's that's admirable. It's a beautiful thing God made, and it's not trivial. Like, it's—it's it's part of the beauty God put in the worth. Like, natural human beauty, like— it's like it's a thing. Like, it's admirable. We like it. We're drawn to it. But it's not supposed to be, like, a super weighty thing, like how we select friends or, like, how we find spouses or those sorts of things. Not to a believer, at least, right? And in the book of Ezekiel, the three things God always holds together as, as like, a major focus of his that we just do not pay attention to like we should are these three things. Idolatry, violence, and injustice. Though that triumvirate together because God believes in the book of Ezekiel, he makes very clear, he believes those three things always go together. Now, you need to listen to that. Part of the Christian or Judeo-Christian view of the world, part of the biblical view of the world is this. Where there is idolatry, there will always be violence and injustice. Always. In all times and in all places. Which is a dangerous thing to say in Madison. Because we're a place that wants to eradicate injustice and minimize violence. And wholly given to idolatry. From a Christian perspective or a biblical historical perspective, we may be able to minimize some injustices, but we'll only pay attention to the ones that fit our present idolatries. So we'll minimize some of those because they, they're part of our—the the God we're worshiping right now tells us, you know, focus on that. That's a bad thing. Don't do that. But we won't—see, we, God, the God of the Bible is the God of all things, all things interrelated, all things under his care and rule. And there are many injustices in his mind, and all of them are, like, interrelated in all these sort of different ways. And it's only godliness dispersed and growing in the church, and the church witnessing like a city on a hill that can really affect it, right? Instead— 
And so here's the thing. So what should we be doing? Well, we should be pursuing what injustices we understand and know in what ways we think are good. That's very good, even if it is in keeping with an idolatry of the time. So you might think I'm saying, like, we shouldn't pay much attention to, like, um, racial disparities. Like, what I'm—I I'm, said that to minimize those things. I did not. Right? When the idolatry of the ungodly culture in which we live focuses on a real injustice, right? It's not bad for us to say, yeah, let's, let's try to do something about that. But the way often idolatry will try to attack a particular injustice is not going to be good. Because it's going to be filled with a certain anxiety about the nature of what they fear related to the particular idol and their prides and vanities related to it. And so their procedures and their policies and how they want to act and do something is much more often going to be a quick fix that you would find in a dysfunctional family rather than the painful long-term solution necessary to build in common virtue. And so that what we'll find is even though we're trying to participate, we might find our relationship to that transformation extremely problematic. But if we're bold about it and we're positive about it, we may be able to do some good and help the goods being done by those given to idolatry to be better than they would have been otherwise, right? But we shouldn't pretend or imagine that these are the only injustices that God sees. And in many cases, I believe that it's often the injustice that would make this other injustice we're focused on better that will be concealed from us for our, because of our own prides, because of demonic activity, and because we choose not to see it because we don't want to, oftentimes because it's more personal to us. You know, well, Nick, what's more personal than race if you're a minority? Well, all of the human frailties that it's easier to ignore when we look at our group and say, like, I'm, I'm part of this group. We all are facing the horror of the weight of our individuality relative to our humanity wrapped up in our relationship to whatever group we belong to. And all humans wish to, wish to avoid that. Right? So as we work through this, we're supposed to grow in Christ and to see that God as displayed in Christ and inscripturated in God's Word in the Bible as teaching us through it relative to His other graces are both admirable and weighty. Right? And relative to things which God calls detestable, they are both detestable and relatively weighty. And God calls idolatry the extreme of both. And that it brings about our social detestable weighty evils of injustice and violence. Does that make sense? So we won't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, instead of loving our neighbor with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we will engage in injustice and violence. Does that make sense? Generally speaking, this is how we, like a normal, like non-converted or non-growing in Christ like Madison, you might look at things, right? We'll care too much about the trivial. We'll exacerbate what we think is the nobility of the trivial, but like is really viscerally connected. It's like we really like, I mean, I just, I, I watch young guys all the time just like looking for the hottest thing and they have no idea what's going to make them happy and they have no idea what godliness looks like, right? And I see that with women too. They're just like, oh, that, let's all like the cute guy. And it's like, it's, this is supposed to be down here and this is supposed to be up here in your dating life, right? And in who you're seeking for a spouse, right? And so like this, you know, people like, people like the outdoors and they like fish fries and cherry cobbler and stuff. But like, so you see, now you see how violence, injustice, and idolatry are in the detestable wing? Like Christians who are not growing in Christ or people who are not believers, right, who look at these things, they recognize that injustice is, that violence is really bad. They recognize that injustice is really bad. And they recognize that idolatry is bad. And yet to the extent to which it pertains to them, they see their own violences— right? Like, you're like, I don't violence. Really, if I went through all your social media feed, would I not find bullying? 
Would I not find your vanity at the expense of other people's humanity? Would I not? If I looked at all your arguments, about, right? Like if God, if God, because remember God sees everything. Are you sure there's no you using your power to get other people to do what you want? Right? To where it pertains to us, where injustice pertains to us, and most importantly, where idolatry pertains to us. We recognize it's not perfect. It's not great. Like it may be, not be my best moment. But, be, but what we do is, because we can't lie to ourselves so much as to say some of these things are actually admirable. That's a special level of depravity, right? You've got to go down the road of damnation a little ways to so sear your conscience and to so create a self-deception that you can—but you will. Ultimately, you will move these over here if you go down that process. You'll think by like doing what's wrong, you're doing good, right? There's a place where it says in Scripture that the day will come where they will kill Christ's followers and those who belong to him, and they'll think they're doing God a favor, Right? So that happens. But that's not where most people are. Where most people are is this morally ambiguous place where you recognize the thing's kind of wrong, but you think it's trivial. Really. You might think, I don't think it's trivial. Really? If I observed your life, if I observed not just your mental processes, but your emotions and your visceral reaction, how your soul and strength move out from you, would I not think, or much better, would an all-seeing God not think that you actually think it's trivial? Right? The weightless God. Now, <clears throat> there's also this problem in how we love our neighbor. Right? When these things are distorted, we get this problem with how we love our neighbor. But we would love to say <clears throat> that when we have like a conflict with another person, that how the other person behaved was both detestable and weighty, and how we behaved was admirable and weighty. We're like the best you could be, and they were the worst you could be. But you can't ever really get away with that. Right? Not in a real argument. Right? Or not even in real gossip. So what we do to win is we, we change it to this. Yeah, I wasn't perfect, but you. Have you ever had that discussion? Or had that thought in your mind? Right? Basic to human moral self-deception is that because you're important, because the other person is an object to you rather than an equal person, what happens is, is that you maximize in your mind their faults and maximize your positive traits and what you did, and your experience, you see how your, all your experience that led up to that conflict as making it completely understandable that you would do the things you did, and the, th the stuff that you've done for that other person, making it completely ununderstandable un what they did. And so even though, yeah, you're both technically in the wrong, especially according to the Bible, right? Like, you weren't, you weren't, like, equally wrong. You are like, he was—oh, sorry, I'm going the wrong way. Like, you know, he was really wrong, and you are not so wrong, right? Idolatry will always create injustice and violence, do you see? It will always do it. And your, our self-deception will find a way to do it. And even when it can't say that we are the most admirable and weighty humans in the world, we will find a way to say, yeah, but what I did wasn't a big deal. Right? And it's little stuff. Like, this happened to listen to my car last night. You know, my kids just like spoke unkind words to each other. And they were both, but he— but she. And I was like, does that matter? Like, do you think the Lord would be like, oh yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> right? And, and to my son's credit, he was like, yeah, dad, that, yeah. Now, either he was placating my vanity, or he was repenting. I'll never know which, right? <clears throat> but, um, 
we all have to recognize the self deception It doesn't matter how Christian you are. It doesn't matter how long you follow Jesus. It doesn't matter how loving you believe you are. This is always the creeping idol. This is always happening in every marriage, in every parent-child relationship, in every sibling relationship, in every work relationship, in every, 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 every relationship. This is happening. And it is the poison that destroys the capacity to feel love coming from that other person and for you to pour out love towards that other person. And all the more as it gets harder, which is when we need to be even better. Partly because that's when our God is even better. Right? All right, my sermon's supposed to be over. So let's—I already said that. Let's just do this briefly. So— The second thing is, is that not only do we distinguish between detestable things and trivial things, right, and understand that, we have to actually grieve and lament over detestable things, right? To love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength means that we, we actually feel it, right? Look at what it says in 9, 6, 3, 6. The Lord called to a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. Now these are like angelic figures. They represent the Babylonian conquest that's coming. <clears throat> Does that make sense? They come from the north, like uh, armies always attack Israel. Like it's, just, it's symbolic, right? And so this person is kind of like this figurative angelic figure. And he says to him, go through the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of all those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things done in it. That's the criteria. That's the only criteria. Now, you'd be like, well, Nick, that's weird. That's really not the criteria of salvation, damnation, like anywhere else in the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's true. Are you sure? Right, because what if God selects as an indicator something that presumes the real test of salvation or damnation, which is faith, right? Right, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to believe in him and in his Christ, right? Or to believe in the promise that he's given you, which is to believe in the God who is there and his character and what he loves and detests and therefore to feel that with him. And so that what real faith would look like in a time as abominably broken as this one, where, where people are—they just don't have any ability to change what's happening about them, right? Is that they at least feel in their hearts and they express even in their groanings that they lament and they hate the fact that it's like this. That they feel similarly to the Lord himself about the nature of the context in which they live. Right? <clears throat> So, the, and so then he says, whoops, sorry. So then he says, As I listened, he said to the others, that is the warriors in that group, follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men, maidens, women, children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark and begin at my sanctuary. And so they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. This is a really interesting um, point here because God is focusing on the people. And he's saying, He's saying, mark the ones who grieve and lament over. And the, the more literal translation of that is who sigh and groan. So think about that. That is rationality meets emotion meets visceral bodily expression. Does that make sense? They're literally groaning and sighing. And that takes up what you think about something, how you feel about it, and how you bodily express that emotion and thought coming out of you as holistically as possible. It's coming out of your soul. Does that make sense? That that expression, right, which is exactly what Jesus tells us, it means to follow God in the most basic sense in the greatest commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? There's this verse, the weird, okay, the weirdest verse in this passage, who knows what the weirdest, it's right up there, right? What does it say? 
Son of man, do you see them raising the stick up to their nose? Right? Like that was, that was a moving verse, wasn't it? Weren't you like, it just breaks my heart to hear that. People lifting the stick up to their nose. I'm grieving. I'm grieving in God's name. So, um, there's, so you read the commentators on this. A lot of ink has been spilt. Um, the best explanation of that verse that I know of is that a number of commentators believe that the word there was actually changed from my. That there was a period of time in Jewish scribal history where anthropomorphizing God, that is referring to God as having like human physicality or bodily characteristics, was seen as completely anathema because everybody knows God is spirit and not body. And they were uncomfortable with using metaphors of the physical body because they thought that common and normal people would associate that with God being like an old man in the sky or something like that. And they thought that would be a terrible way to think about God, which is correct. And so like this scribe helpfully changed God's word and like changed me to their. So it was their noses rather than God saying my nose, right? Lift up to can easily be translated stick into, stick up. So one way you could think about it is this, is God saying about—he's like, I'm seeing this, this, these abominations, and then they add to it injustice and violence. Do they have to keep trying to stick the stick up my nose? Right? Like, you can imagine, like, this big muscle-bound guy with great character sitting by a playground, right? And this kid, like, gets some stick, right? And he, like, comes over to this, like, like, tatted-up godly man, right? Who's, like, 340 and only, you know, like, 2% body fat. Like, just imagine, right? And he's, like, starts poking him with a stick, right? He's poking him, like, look at him, poking him, you know? And he's, like, the guy's, like, could you stop? Could you stop? Right? And, like, and he's just doing it. He just keeps going on and on. And, like, this kid doesn't have parents, let's say. I don't know. Who knows? But the kid's just, like, poking, pokes him in the shoulder and then the arm and the back. He's poking him. Like, there's, like, bread marks and stuff. He's poking him. He sharpens it on a stone, like, pokes him more. Right? And then he just can't get the guy to, like, do more than tell him he's doing something wrong. You know what I mean? And so finally, this kid's kind of like, it's kind of a nasty kid, right? And he's kind of like, I'm going to see how far this can go. Like, how do you take it further than, like, just poking him everywhere? He's like, I'm going to stick this thing up his nose. So he comes down the front of the guy, and he, like, goes to stick the stick up his nose. Okay, like, I don't care how godly man you are. Like, you're gonna, like, kid tries to stick up your nose. You're, you're gonna grab that stick, and you're gonna break it. You're gonna be like, what are you doing? <laughs> and at that point, like, you're really doing the kid a favor. Okay, like, I mean, this kid, somebody's gotta tell this kid, you can't be doing this. You know what I mean? And so he's, like, there's, you see how, like, even for ourselves, like, if I was like, okay, somebody's messing with you, and they try to stick something up your nose. You'd be like, see the visceral, you get like a visceral reaction. That's the whole point, right? It's like, God's like, they keep just trying to get me. It's like they're trying to stick a stick up my nose. He's like, son of man, is this trivial? Is this no big deal? Right? They have to see that it's detestable and weighty. And they have to see it with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Until it makes them sigh and groan. And those are the people I actually know have faith. Right? <laughs> right? Like, what's your, like, what's your visceral reaction to, like, roadkill, right? Like, most people are like, like, last, remember when, like, we were having the, it was, like, Good Friday service, and there was a pastor from Blackhawk, and he was like, he had the pizza, and he put, like, the hair on it. You know, he's like, he's like, would you eat this with hair on it? Like, and everybody's like, oh, that's disgusting. And he's like, and they're like, that's such a good illustration. Like, it is a good illustration. It's good that he used it. A lot of people connected with that. Didn't bother me at all. 
I was like, just dust that right off there. I mean, the guy probably washes his hair like every day. I mean, this stuff's from a barbershop. They probably even washed his hair before they cut it. Who cares? Yeah, it's a little crunchy, but it's fiber. You know, like, I don't care. Right? Like, I eat dead stuff. Okay, so the point is, <laughs> point is, like, it's arguable whether or not that should be disgusting. I, in my view, like, there's some stuff that's like, you just like, you would throw up. Like, it would just, like, and it would smell so bad. And like, it's not wrong to have a strong visceral and emotional response to that which is detestable. And God intentionally, in the Old Testament, all the way through the present, seeks to connect that which we naturally have a very strong experience of, right? Smelling something that's just going to make you throw up, and how we should naturally respond to that which is detestable. Now, that does not mean we can pour out our anger on people that do detestable things. Do you understand? I probably should say something like this, since the culture wind designates June as Gay Pride Month. It's the month of my birthday. Isn't that fun? Um, On one level— Right? Like, there is something wrong when people have a visceral response, right? They really are homophobic. They're afraid of people who have, like, those kinds of orientations, and they're really awful to them, or mean, or, like, hurtful in ways that just, like, are completely unnecessary, right? Like, in some ways, I'm like, yeah, wait, wait, wave your little flag, because, like, you deserve to be treated well, and this is how you know how to advocate for that, and okay. And, like, I want, like, kids and adults and people who visit the church to know that, like, like, there's a certain extent which, like, I'm on board. And then there's, like, another sense where, it's, like, I'm not on board, right? Just like I've—you know, you can see, like, a picture of, like, people waving their flags. And you see people holding up, like, you know, God hates gays, right? Like, and you're, you're kind of like, look, I know where you're both coming from here. I know where you're both coming from. You both feel attacked. You both feel afraid. You both feel threatened. You're both fighting for your right to exist. You're both trying to—you're trying to deal with something you feel like you can't change, right? People can't change their religious belief if it's their, their deep-held conviction. They think it's true. People have a really hard time changing what they feel like are their internal drives and orientations. Like, I get that, right? Like, and I get that you don't want to be attacked for it by everybody, right? And I get that, like, the gay pride people, like, they're waving their stuff and they're doing their dances, they're wearing their little things. I think gay pride is in June because you can wear, like, really skimpy clothing and it's not freezing. That's what I think it's really for. And, like, like, they're doing that to say, I can be here, right? And I'm like, okay, this is a really bad way to say I can be here, but I get that you feel like you have to say I, I can be here. Like, I get that. So, like, I accept that on one level. And, like, the other Christian people, like, I'm like, Okay, guys. Oh, you're embarrassing me a lot here. Um, so, it's one thing to say this is like advocating this, doing this. Really, these, the philosophy built into it is the biggest problem, right? And you're like, ah, oh, uh, but you don't get to behave that way towards these folks. You still get to, you don't, you don't, the, the invitation is lament and mourn when we see sins and there's always an implicit invitation in every negative things Christians should say. When God says, mean things to you, there's always either an implicit or explicit invitation. The idea is to bring you back into fellowship, to bring you to faith and repentance, right? Like, those folks don't know that you've got some implicit invitation in your hateful nonsense. Like, they just don't know that, and it doesn't work, right? And so, like, I'm like, listen, I get why you're doing that. You feel like you should have, like, this really deep-seated revulsion to this thing God says in certain practices within the wider scope of sexual immorality is detestable like all sexual immorality, that tons of people in this room participate in. And yet, the goal is to, one, lament, not express detestation with hatred, and secondly, to allow the sins of others to be mirrors to yourself. Right? Like, what I experience in my own life is not sexual wholeness. I think of myself as more on that other side of the earth, but I, 
right? Do you see what I'm saying with this? Like, you, it's one thing to feel and even to express that feeling, even sighing and groaning to God about all kinds of things, whether it's your own experience of some of your internal drives towards things that you know aren't right, whatever they are, we all have tons of them, or whether it's like how other people are making it more difficult for you to believe and honestly follow God in a way that's upright. And we're all terrified of each other, and we all feel threatened by each other, and that's the way it is. And that's why love is such a hard and sacrificial thing for everyone. And only God really does it very well. Notice the distinction, like, that God makes in this passage about who he sends the, these divine angelic figures to destroy. It's none of the reasons that we would have mercy on people, right? It's none of the reasons. Like, we, we might say, like, old men, like, deserve, like, reverence because they're old. You know, they've had a lot of experience. They're not selected, right? Young men and young women, they're like the future of your society. They're like, they're your greatest assets. They're the, the ones who are going to create your future. That's not enough. That's not going to do it, right? Mothers and children, you think that, that, that like, women who accept this like nurturing role and they like, they enter into this, this role of care, they should be shielded from violence because their main calling is to be tender with those that are being brought up. And children themselves were in this tender, more innocent state, right? Like they should be spared just for that. And the answer is no. And then you might think that like the religious people, I mean, religious people often think religious people would be the people spared, but they're not, right? Where does, where does the wrath begin? It starts right here in my sanctuary, right? He's like, come in and kill the priests first. And then it literally says it starts with the elders. That is the hierarchically highest people. I mean, the elders are, were the rulers of Israel, the 70 elders. They're the rulers. They're, they're probably wealthy. They have control over things. They get to make the laws and institute how they're enforced. Like, they're right there, but they're right there in the temple worshiping idols, and they die next. Right? None of these things by which we would either expect to be able to attain safety or by which we would even in normal empathetic care extend safety are the criteria that God actually uses. The criteria that God actually uses is just one. Whether the people groan, sigh, and lament over the detestable things done in the city. Right? So, what are the takeaways? One is, we have to learn to discern admirable, detestable, weighty, trivial in God's mind. Admirable, detestable isn't enough. Admirable and detestable is just enough to think that you've got it and leaving tons of space for your self-deception <laughs> to give you room to choose damnation for yourself, <laughs> to continue to deceive yourself, and to continue to put yourself up and other people down and to destroy the capacity of love that comes from repentance and recognizing how wrong you were and how you should give your understanding to that person and their bad behavior rather than just to you and your bad behavior. Right? Like, we have to get this very clear in our mind, and we have to recognize that God has come not just to set this up clearly, but to particularly come after our self-deceptions related to it. So that we, we expect them, we suspect ourselves of them, and that we are actively working against them. And we're open to the correction of others to tell us that we're in the midst of them. And it also— Friends should show you something about the beauty and glory of Jesus, the Christ. Right? Like, when you see it that way, to recognize that— because um, people say, you know, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Do you know Jesus loves you? 
and you're like, I don't, I don't know if I feel like Jesus loves me. I don't know if I feel love pouring out from Jesus to me. And like what we want is some mystical experience where we're like, we're singing in worship or something, or praying to God, and God like speaks to us audibly, or like we feel this like waves of liquid love passing over our souls. You know what I mean? Like we want something like that. We want to feel like God loves us. But like if love felt is coming along with us, seeing the good and the bad, seeing its weight and expressing itself in relationship to that, then there is, there is no better encapsulation of love than Jesus the Christ, who, who literally came and like pushed in us. He's like, listen, do you see what the kingdom of God is like and what the kingdom of this world is like? Do you see the difference between good and evil? Do you see the difference between what is admirable and detestable? Do you see it? Do you understand it? And do you understand that these things are weighty? Like we walk around and pretend like they don't matter. And yet to God, they matter incredibly. Don't you see? Because they matter to me. And I'm showing that they should matter to you, right? And he does all these things in the ministry to see, to help people find their spiritual weight, their gravity, right? And then he pours out everything, heart, soul, mind, and strength for them to express to them how far he's willing to go, what he's willing to express. And he pours out his heart and his love. He doesn't just spill his blood. He doesn't just get executed on their behalf in a horrific way. He's, he pours out his lament, his cries, his sighs, his groans for them, for us, for you, for everyone we'll ever speak to or be around. And he pours it out forth so that we would feel it. We would become sensible of it. And in so doing, we could be changed by it and slowly learn to love in that accord. To love what's admirable and to rejoice in it but also be willing to see what's detestable and to lament before God about it and then sort of try to engage with the thing and seek to ameliorate it. Not with hateful action, but with love. Discerning, weighty, wholehearted love. We better stop there. Uh, Lord, I want to put this one up there for your editing. I wish that you could redact this document. But I pray, Lord, that um, you, by your Holy Spirit you would with memory. That the things that I've said that you believe in, that you feel strongly about, that you know are true, that you know that we need, I pray that you'd press them in in conviction right now. I pray that you would let the Word do its work. You, by your Spirit, would do your work in our hearts. And by your providence, that I would have said something that connected with experiences and thoughts and feelings and places people are at. I pray that those things would burn in and that anything else would go away. And I pray that you would minister to your people through this imperfect offering. Help us to adore you in Jesus' name.